Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Identifying and Assessing Agitation in Alzheimer's Dementia is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Otsuka American Pharmaceutical Incorporation. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to this webcast entitled Identifying and Assessing Agitation in Alzheimer's Dementia. I'm Dr. Chuck Vega and I'm a clinical professor of family medicine at the University of California at Irvine. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Tom Heinrich. Yeah. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, thanks for that introduction, Chuck. I'm Tom Heinrich. I am a family medicine physician and a psychiatrist at the Medical College of Wisconsin where I'm a professor both in psychiatry and family medicine and it's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Great to have you. So in this webcast, we'll be continue discussing agitation in Alzheimer's-associated dementia and look at best practices for identifying and assessing agitation. Before we get started today, let's look at our learning objectives. We're going to be summarizing the impact of agitation on individuals with Alzheimer's disease, their care partners, and clinicians, and the healthcare system. Uh, we're also going to be defining agitation based on criteria established by the International Psychogeriatric Association Agitation Definition Working Group. And then we'll spend some time describing the approach to identifying, diagnosing, and the ongoing assessment of neuropsychiatric symptoms in individuals with dementia. And finally, we'll be identifying some validated neuropsychiatric assessment tools for use within primary care. So in my module earlier, I described that uh, 98% of individuals uh, with Alzheimer's dementia will develop behavioral and psychological uh, symptoms. And that increases over time as uh, the, the severity of Alzheimer's disease or other dementia is worse, as well as, um, as patients grow older. So let's begin to understand what agitation is and what it looks like by reviewing the consensus definition from the International Psychogeriatric Association. The IPA's Agitation Definition Working Group originally published a provisional definition in 2015, but just recently removed the word provisional and presented the following as a final definition. So first of all, let's start with criterion A. I think it's the most obvious. The patient uh, must meet criteria for a cognitive impairment or dementia syndrome. And then B gets into the behaviors themselves. So uh, they have to have at least one um, behavior associated with agitation. Uh, and it has to promote some level of emotional distress. And the patient uh, has to have that behavior uh, persistently or frequently uh, for a minimum of two weeks or it's a notable change from the patient's usual behavior. And where are the behaviors? It's the behaviors we see all the time in uh, folks with dementia as it gets more advanced. It's excessive motor activity, it's verbal aggression, and it's physical aggression as well. Now, the, uh, the behaviors at least have to promote ex excess distress or excess disability beyond what the patient is experiencing uh, due to their cognitive dysfunction. This is criterion C for, uh, for this definition. And so there's impairment, either it's interpersonal relationships, social functioning, or activities of daily living. And then finally, importantly, criterion D states that the agitation isn't due to another psychiatric disorder, not due to a medical condition. Um, that includes delirium, which is always important to consider, um, not due to any suboptimal care conditions. And that 
brings up the issue of potential abuse uh, or neglect. Uh, and so that's always something to think about when we have patients who um, with dementia who have a, a, a new change in behavior and experiencing agitation. We have to screen for that. And then finally, we also screen for, um, for substances, usually medications that we're prescribing that could uh, potentially cause the agitation as well. So, Tom, I'll bring you into the conversation uh, around this uh, definition. Is there anything you feel like there's wanting in this definition, or does that fit with your clinical practice and you know, what, what you think is important to really understand um, for folks with agitation and dementia? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think it's a really well-rounded criteria for agitation in patients suffering or experiencing dementia. It really hits a lot of the high points from uh, the ruling out of other potential causes for that agitation, but also um, qualifies the type of behaviors in that you know, it's looking at the motor activity, it's capturing the concept of verbal aggression as well. So it, it's a pretty well-rounded and, and frankly clinically useful criteria. I agree. I think it's very pragmatic. It's something that I can use in my practice. It makes sense to me. I think that one point that might be a pearl for clinicians is the fact that um, it has to cause some distress. We see you know, particular behaviors as folks advance through dementia that may be distressing to caregivers, but the patient's quite, you know, quite content with. These are things like just repeating uh, behaviors or repeating questions. Um, and if I think that there's, there does cross a line where the caregiver may be feeling burnt out by that, and that, that's, a, that's something I can address. But I wouldn't necessarily say that that meets the criteria for agitation because it doesn't necessarily create that burden of distress either on caregiver or patient. So I think that that's one thing. And, and I think that line can, can be crossed, actually. It may start, not start out as a, as a symptom of agitation, but gradually it grows into one because it's causing some distress on someone's part. So in addition, in Module 1, we talked about the impact of agitation in uh, dementia. And uh, let's start with, with patients that it is associated with a higher risk of mortality, but also injury. And injury for these individuals uh, can be severe. We're talking about older individuals, many with comorbid conditions, and they're more frail. So an injury, a fall, say, can result in hospitalization. And that in of itself can lead to greater institutionalization, certainly a loss of independence as well. Um, do you want to speak to a little bit about what the impact is in terms of uh, the impact on caregivers for, uh, for folks with agitation and dementia? Yeah, I mean, talk about a, a disorder that has impact kind of across the spectrum. You, you have, as you alluded to, you have the, the patient who's impacted by these disorders that are often amazingly distressful to them. Um, and then, and then you have the caregivers, the support givers, the, the individuals that are, are, are trying to make good often. And to see somebody have these problems, having the inability to function, could really wear on them. You try these interventions, you try what you may see on the internet, and they're not working. It, it tends to wear on you. Um, and, you know, your safety may be put in risk. That's true. As, as the individual's insight tends to decline, they may not recognize you. Um, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of potential distress associated with, with this disorder in the, in the individuals that are caring for them. So it, it is one of those conditions where measuring the distress, asking about the distress, is, is really key to the treatment of the disorder. 
I certainly have uh, treated more depression and anxiety among individuals or caregivers once the agitation starts. So it's really something uh, to be aware of. But it takes time. And so we, we shared some data how uh, clinicians recognize that this takes more visits, longer visits. Uh, they don't feel very comfortable with treatments or even recommending maybe some of the behavioral techniques. And, and I, I, I feel the same way. It is very important, though, I think, to identify it and because there are management techniques that are important that we, can, that we can use. And by taking care of it together between the patient and the caregiver, we'll reduce the risk of institutionalization, which in, in my practice personally is an outcome that almost nobody wants. Uh, you know, here, uh, you know, with, a, with the folks I see in my practice, I see incredible caregivers who go to extraordinary lengths to continue to uh, take care of an older adult, even towards severe stages of dementia with agitation. Yeah, I mean, I th- you mentioned in your talk, I mean, the the risk of institutionalization with these behaviors is huge. So, and that, that's not where anybody wants to go. So the more we can do to, to address those behaviors and address the distress associated with those behaviors. I mean, uh, you have a loved one who's dealing with uh, with a with an individual that has a chronic deteriorating condition. There, there's nowhere to go but down usually with right. these conditions. So they're coming to grips with that. And then you add these behaviors onto the picture. It, it, it can be, I mean, it talk about a weight on a shoulder. Absolutely. And, but I, I will say, and I, I thought your point about uh, the risk to the caregiver is quite valid. So there's, there's certainly the mental health risk, which I mentioned, and the physical risk, which you were alluding to, um, absolutely is there. And there does come a point where it's, it's, we have to consider institutionalization for the safety of everyone because the risk of either physical harm or neglect is, is, so, is either uh, very present or perhaps they've actually crossed the threshold where it's actually happening um, and that's the point where you have to have a, you know, a meeting where everybody comes to an agreement and some kind of reality. Yeah, you talked about how caregivers are often willing to tolerate so much in an effort to keep somebody at home. And that, that comes to the point of these kind of spectrums of behaviors we see often in patients with dementia um, when they are getting agitated. Um, we often focus on the, the physical agitation, the aggression mm-hmm. potentially towards others or towards inanimate objects. Um, but there can be physical aggression, there can be physical behavior that's not aggressive, that, such as pacing and wandering, sure. that can weigh on somebody a great deal, almost as much as the physical aggression. Right. And then there's those verbal outbursts. Right. They can be the muttering or screaming at somebody. Right. And how hurtful is that potentially towards a caregiver right. when somebody's screaming and not knowing what's going on? So. Um, I really try to make sure that caregivers recognize that this is this is part of the disorder. It, it's not their personality. Sure. It's not who they are. And really try not to take these behaviors personally. Um, and that, 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 that can be somewhat helpful in relieving their distress. Well, let's pull back for a minute okay. and think about, um, gosh, because I, 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 I don't think I'm the best at identifying agitation in the first place. And we know that uh, you know, oftentimes their first contact will be in primary care. Oftentimes they're not seeing a specialist. So can you give us some tips about how we can better identify agitation in dementia? 
Uh, it's like if you're not thinking about it, you're not going to ask about it. So sure. it really has to be it has to be forefront in your mind when you're interacting with patients suffering from dementia, even at early stages of dementia. And you have to be thinking about these these behavioral and psychiatric manifestations of dementia. If you're not thinking about it, you're guaranteed to miss it um, until it's probably too late, until um, that distress has occurred, to something bad has already happened. So you need to be thinking about it. And um, it comes in all shapes and sizes and all types of presentations. It comes with a, with a caregiver that says, you know, frankly, this is what's going on. Do something about it. Right. That's not too hard to pick out that something's right, going right. on. Right, right. One would hopefully catch but, that one. I mean, but, I mean, think about your practice. How many, if you're fortunate enough to care for multiple generations in your practice of one family, you may be seeing a caregiver in your clinic and they're talking about depression and insomnia and loss of weight. And then you kind of make that connection of what's going on in their life. And then they're caring for a, a, a family member who's suffering from dementia. You can pick up behavioral disturbances in dementia in that visit with right. a patient not even in the room. Right. Um, and prompt a visit of that patient to come see you with dementia to start addressing that and, and, and do that. So, again, think about it and ask about it, and potentially think about screening for it mm -hmm. with some of these instruments we may be talking about in a bit. Yeah, maybe you want to share and just do a quick review on a couple of the instruments because I thought that was really valuable for me to hear. Yeah, in my module, I talked a couple about the couple of the neuropsychiatric instruments that can be really helpful in a primary care practice. One is specifically related to agitation, and that's the Cohen Mansfield Agitation Inventory. Um, and the other is maybe a little bit more applicable for screening, and that's the neuropsychiatric inventory questionnaire, because that not only looks at agitation, but looks at other potential neuropsychiatric sequelae of uh, dementia, like depression right. and apathy, like you mentioned in your talk, or anxiety, or even psychosis, which can really confound a lot of people and, and quite frankly, be scary for some people. Yeah, I, I thought that you had me at the neuropsychiatric inventory when describing five minutes filled out by the caregiver um, and can give you that broad range of symptoms because absolutely, we don't want to just treat agitation. We want to identify um, apathy, depression as well. And you can certainly have multiple uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms comorbid in the same patient. And until you treat the depression more effectively, the agitation will probably be less well controlled, not ideally controlled. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that that is something that, uh, that absolutely we can do in primary care. And, again, not just as a screening tool, but then you can follow it along, kind of like we would do with, like, a patient health questionnaire 9, which a lot of, I think, primary care practices are doing in terms of following patients with depression. Screen for it with a PHQ-2 or PHQ-9. And then you've got a nice score, which you can follow over time. It gives you something actionable. We know when you follow uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms like that, generally patients tend to remit easier. And maybe that will take some of the burden and some of the mystery about treating agitation and dementia away so we feel more confident in, uh, in making treatment recommendations. Yeah, I'm actually so glad you mentioned that PHQ-9 and GAD-7, that whole concept mm -hmm. in depression and anxiety about treating towards a target, treating towards remission by using these objective measures. I mean, I think we're early in, in using these types of tools in the management of agitation or the other kind of psychiatric sequelae of dementia, but the tools are there to allow us to do it, and they're pretty flexible um, and, and easy to utilize. We talked about the neuropsychiatric inventory questionnaire. That's the shorter one. You know, there, there's also that Cohen-Mansfield agitation inventory mm -hmm. that's, that, that measures 
29 agitated behaviors and really breaks them down like that the International Psychogeriatric Association does into those those types of behaviors. You have the, the physical aggressive, you have the, the verbal aggression, you have the physical non-aggression, and kind of breaks those behaviors down in the domains. And you can utilize that tool for a longitudinal assessment to see if what in your primary care practice, or me and my practice, if what we've done is actually effective. So say you use one of those instruments and the caregiver is filling it out and it comes back as a, as a positive screen and so you want to address it with you know, the caregiver and patient together and the patient just denies <laughs> that these behaviors exist because this is not an uncommon scenario. We want everybody kind of rowing in the same direction here, caregiver, patient, and provider. How do you manage that kind of situation? Yeah, I often will, will try, to, try to talk to the patient and realize that we can have a disagreement about whether these are whether these behaviors are occurring, but we're going to operate right now on the fact that they are, and we're going to explore them. Um, and if you're using an instrument like the the um, neuropsychiatric inventory questionnaire, that actually includes distress scales. So mm. I'll often list. Um, I'll often appeal to the the patient with dementia's empathy by recognizing the distress in their care support, their caregivers and the importance of that. And most demented patients, unless they're, they're suffering from pretty significant uh, neurocognitive decline, that sense of empathy is still there and they still want to do good, they want to do right. right. So they're willing, to want, they're willing to recognize the distress and maybe disagree with the cause of the distress, right. but address the distress. And that's, I get a lot of traction with that. I think that's great. And I, I like the term of distress and using that language versus agitation, which can be inflammatory. People feel like they're acting out and being blamed. And once they get it on the defensive, and particularly if they have some limited understanding because of their cognitive decline as to what we're even talking about and the reasoning behind it, um, you know, it can actually make the situation more challenging and lead to some, some real tension there, that, which is not good for anyone. But no. using terms like uh, stress instead of, um, uh, instead of anxiety or, uh, or even agitation, talking about stress, talking about fatigue and energy versus talking about depression. I find that those are useful terms because patients feel very comfortable, particularly in a community like mine where um, these symptoms are stigmatized and have been for generations, it just provides an easier space to enter into the conversation so we can all kind of understand each other and then come up with some solutions together. I found it to be very helpful. That's great. Yeah, that's good. So we've been talking about agitation, and we we defined it. And I think one of the keys to the definition is that it should not be caused by a medication side effect. It should not be caused by another comorbid illness that's not being well-controlled. What are the most common things you see that mimic agitation in dementia, but are actually, there's a secondary cause, there's something else, as you mentioned, agitation is a symptom, but the cause is something quite separate from the dementia. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that, because again, one of my teaching points is that, you know, agitation is a symptom of something, it's not a disorder in and of itself, so we have to figure that out. And, you know, agitation, related secondary to a dementia is really a diagnosis of exclusion. You've right. got to look for all this other stuff that may be contributing it to it. So, you know, you look for, you look at patient factors. I think, I believe in your module, you mentioned, you know, what chronic conditions that the, that the patient may have may be exacerbated that are causing this. Sure. Some of the most common are depression and anxiety. Right. But don't overlook 
congestive heart failure and shortness of breath, the shortness of breath presenting with agitation, the distress associated with that leading to agitation. Um, we often think about other patient factors like unmet needs, pain. Mm-hmm. Pain is a common cause of agitation. So we look to address that boredom, stimulating activities, bringing those kind of things can do it. So you look at those patient-specific factors, but you also have to look at the environment, what's going on surrounding the patient, sure. what's going on in the house where they're residing. Is, the, is it a too stimulating environment or not stimulating enough? Does the care manager, does the, the caregiver's communication style match that of the patient? A distressed, overwhelmed caregiver does not communicate often all that well. Sure. And that can escalate the distress. A frustrated caregiver often will communicate frustration in somebody, to somebody who doesn't understand the frustration leading to agitation. And I, I, it reminds me of a case just from a couple of weeks ago in my own practice, a patient uh, with severe dementia having more agitation. And what had changed was that a new job for the primary caregiver, yeah. now there were multiple caregivers that were linking up during the day. And it is, it's a challenge. I can't dictate to families that, no, you need to have one caregiver there because they need to live their lives. But it, there were even gaps in care where this person was left alone at times for an hour or two at a time and was wandering and potentially and getting into some you know some situations which could be dangerous and so it really just took a family conference to try to bring everybody together to just even though there's different caregivers keep the routine the same at least at least so really make sure that it's uh, yeah, that every day at four o'clock at five o'clock. The routine is similar, so that way we'll minimize the disruption of the patient. And so far, so good. It seems to have worked. But uh, but there is often some root cause. You have to look for it within the patient in terms of their you know physiology, pathology, but also in terms of their medication list, other substances they could be using, and then finally uh, look to their home environment too. It's a, it's a lot. How yeah. do you move through that efficiently? We, we, we use the term cognitive reserve. We all have a certain degree of cognitive reserve that allows us you to do. deal with stressors, to right. deal with chaos, to deal with schedules that go out of whack. Patients with dementia have very little, if mm. any, cognitive reserve to, to deal with those curveballs life throws us. So that structure is so important for those patients. So one of my instructions to caregivers is, is you know, to, to minimize the distractions and to maximize, what cognitive, to maximize what cognitive reserve the patient has. Don't stress it. Right. Um, in, yeah, because results can be bad. Yeah. yeah. And the stressing can be environmental. It could be medications. It could be um, a urinary tract infection. The stressors could really be any number of things. Okay. Well, I, you know, I think this takes us to kind of the take-home points for today's session, and I'll focus on the impact overall because if this didn't have, you know, a strong impact on patients, their caregivers, the healthcare system, you know, it wouldn't be so important. It has a major impact. So we're talking about an increased risk of death for folks with agitation uh, in dementia. Um, they have more clinic visits. The clinic visits tend to take longer. And clinicians oftentimes don't feel prepared and they don't feel like they've got the adequate tools to treat individuals. And then for caregivers, higher risk of burnout, which can lead to institutionalization. 
Um, I think it's also very important from my perspective to identify agitation and then get the diagnosis right. Um, so remember, it has to be at least two weeks of symptoms. They have to be causing distress to the patient or the uh, caregiver, um, and they can be caused, as we just went over, uh, by ex- extrinsic forces that are uh, causing stress to the patient, which can be many different types, but if you find them, you can really do a lot of good for patients uh, because you can correct those without necessarily having to you know, re- go to pharmacotherapy right away for agitation. What are your take-homes? Yeah, so I mean, I would start, you know, if, we, if we've identified that there are um, neuropsychiatric sequelae of the dementia, it starts with defining those and characterizing those. It starts by not accepting just the term agitation, but what does that agitation mean? Give me, give me concrete examples for that. Um, it's by establishing those baseline behaviors and the severity of those behaviors, ideally through the use of some neuropsychiatric assessment tools like the Cohen-Mansfield or the Neuropsychiatric Inventory Questionnaire, by establishing those firm baselines, we're actually knowledgeable about what we're going to treat. Um, And then once we know what those baselines are, we come up with a plan on how to manage it, again, using those kind of tools we talked about, Mm -hmm. uh, looking at the patient, looking at the environment, and looking at the caregiver. Once Once we assemble that care plan, we want to monitor that care plan, care plan longitudinally, kind of going forward and yeah. follow up. Ideally, by the use of subjective measures, how are things going, having those conversations, but by also using these, these neuropsychiatric uh, instruments that we mentioned before. One of the other really nice things about those neuropsychiatric instruments is they can they they bring value to to the visit with the patient we've talked about how time consuming these patients right. are for your very short 15 20 minute assessment um, the patient's caregivers can come with these forms filled out right. to you and you can and, and that sh- that gives them a sense of involvement a sense of of uh caring for their loved one in a different manner. But it also gives you something that you can kind of sit down and look at and can guide the conversation through that piece of paper and really do a focused, efficient type of interview with that. So it's really, we like win-wins in medicine. Mm -hmm. This is a win-win. It's an evidence-based tool that can hopefully make your job in primary care a little bit more efficient. Absolutely, and and that that questionnaire becomes my history of present illness. Actually, so there's another way to make it more efficient. Essentially, it's incorporated in the medical record, which is you know great for continuity of care for the patient, but also just creates another sense of efficiency. That said, I, I think that this is you know it's it's a tough job. I, I as a as a primary care physician, I think it is a tough job, but it is one of the most important jobs you can have because you can help slow the progression of dementia. You can slow those some of those negative outcomes that nobody, including you as a clinician, want for patients. And I think overall yields good things. Couldn't agree more. All right. Well, hopefully our audience uh, feels the same way and uh, got some good use and some clinical pearls out of this discussion. Tom, it was great. Uh, Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today and uh, hope everybody stays well. Join us for the next modules in the series. We're going to be focusing more on the management of agitation in dementia. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources and is supported by an independent educational grant from Otsuka American Pharmaceutical Incorporation. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.